In our studies through the book of Romans so far, we've seen how the Apostle Paul explains and defends the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He does so by setting it against the ways that people tend to misunderstand this doctrine. And against all those who would suggest that a person must do something in order to make himself or herself acceptable to God. Paul shows that God accepts sinners not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus has accomplished salvation by living a perfect life of obedience to God's commandments, thereby earning the righteousness that God requires of all of us as His image bearers. And then He died a sacrificial death in behalf of sinners, thereby paying the penalty that our sins deserve. And it's by His life and by His death in the place of sinners that God then saves all who trust in Him. We receive the benefits of everything that Jesus has done just in the same way that the patriarch Abraham did. Not by doing, not by trying, but by trusting. Not by works, but by faith. God saves sinners by sheer grace. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that we are reconciled to God. That's the good news. That's what the Bible means by the gospel. And at the heart of the gospel, this salvation is the judicial declaration whereby God regards sinners as if they had never sinned and grants them righteousness. That's the essence of what it means to be justified. It's to be accepted by God as if you were perfectly righteous. It's to see yourself in His courtroom and to hear the gavel come down and the declaration to your conscience, not guilty, accepted, forgiven, right, forever. When sins are forgiven, when righteousness is credited to your account by God, you're justified. That's what justification is. It's a declaration that God Himself makes. And He makes that declaration out of His free grace. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. Nothing you can ever do to warrant it. But rather, it is by grace alone. All we do is receive it. We receive it, how? Not by works, but by faith. We take God at His word. We believe Him. And we receive Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the heart of the good news of salvation that the whole Bible teaches. This is what the Apostle Paul has been making crystal clear for the first four chapters in the letter to the church at Rome. Specifically, he begins to explain this in the 19th verse of the first chapter, the 18th verse of the first chapter, when he announces why we need to be justified. And he sets before us the doctrine of sin, all the way down through chapter 3, verse 20. And then beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3, he says, but though you can't earn righteousness yourself, there is now righteousness. There's the righteousness you need. And it's available in Jesus Christ. And it comes as a gift 
to everyone who will receive Jesus Christ as Lord. God justifies ungodly people by giving them the righteousness of His Son. And ungodly people receive that righteousness by humbling ourselves and trusting Jesus Christ as Lord. So if you want to be justified, if you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want to be considered righteous in God's sight, the Apostle Paul says you can have this, you can receive these blessings in the exact same way that Abraham, the patriarch, did. By trusting God. Taking Jesus by faith. That's what we read at the very end of Romans chapter 4. At the end of that chapter, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Paul quotes Genesis 15.6 about Abraham. That verse says Abraham believed God and that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And then the last verses of chapter 4 build upon that quote where Paul ends the chapter by saying, but the words, it was counted to him, speaking of Abraham, was not written for his sake alone, Abraham's sake, but for ours also. And it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, this forgiveness of sins, this justification before God is available to anyone and everyone who is willing to bow to Jesus Christ. Now, if you are here this morning and you're trusting Christ and you say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and you're renouncing your life of sin, you're not dependent on anything else to make you right with God, you are justified before God. And if you're not justified before God, well, praise God you're here. We want you to be here. And we want you to be justified. We want you to experience forgiveness of sins. Can, can you even conceive of what it's like to really know that every last one of your sins is forgiven by God? Every last one of your sins has been paid for so that you don't have to worry about paying for any sin ever again. Can you imagine what it's like for God to look upon you and for it to be true that in God's sight, by His declaration, you are regarded as perfectly righteous? Isn't that amazing? And yet that's what's available in Christ. And so our prayer, our desire for everyone in this room, for the people we know and love, is that you would turn from your sin and trust Jesus and experience forgiveness. Receive that declaration in God's courtroom to your conscience that he counts you righteous and that you will be righteous forever in his sight. Not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus Christ has already done. It is yours. It is yours. Simply by confessing your sin and trusting Christ. You don't have to jump through a hoop. You don't have to join this church. You don't have to go through any rituals. Where you are as you are right now. Simply confessing your sin against God. And believing in your heart that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Call him your Lord. And God will justify you right now well, we see the apostle paul making that case in romans 3 and 4 and then we come to chapter 5 which is where we begin today in our ongoing study of this letter and paul begins to sort out some of the implications of being justified some of the consequences that belong to us 
Everyone who trusts Christ in this way, God provides to that person a life that is rich in joyful hope. We see this in the first 11 verses of the fifth chapter of the letter to the Romans. And that's going to be our text this morning. So I invite you to take a copy of God's Word, open it up there, because I'm just going to walk through the first section of what we look at in these verses for our study today. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll find it on page 942. 942. Follow along, I'm going to read the first 11 verses from Romans chapter 5. And here's what the Word of God says. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The justified life is a life that is rich in joyful hope. That's the point. The Apostle Paul is making for us in this section. Do you see the emphasis in the verses I just read? The emphasis on joy and hope? Paul says that those of us who have been justified by faith in Jesus have reason to rejoice even in the midst of tribulations. And that hope that we have that gives way to or gives ground to our joy is the hope of knowing that God is going to glorify himself in and through his son in a significant way beyond anything we've seen at the end of time. The justified life is a life rich in joyful hope. There are six incredible consequences that the Apostle Paul spells out that extend from justification in the verses that I just read. You see the first word in verse 1, Paul begins this section by saying, therefore, he's telling us, I'm going to draw out implications of what I've just written to you about regarding justification. I like what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. He writes, I sometimes think that the whole secret of the Christian life is to know how to use the word therefore. The Christian life is in many ways a matter of logic, a matter of deduction, The Christians who have shined most brightly throughout the centuries have always been those who have been able to use this word, therefore. So if you're trusting Jesus today, there are six blessings that belong to you that come from the therefore, because you're justified, that we ought to be seeking to access. We ought to be seeking to live in the light of. Let me list them for you, all six of them, and then I'm going to focus in on the first four today, and God willing, we'll come back and look at these verses again and pick up those last two in future studies. So look at 
verse 1 with me. You see the first of these blessings is peace with God. Verse 2, first part of it, we have a standing in grace. And then the second part of verse 2, the third blessing is the joy we have in the hope of the glory of God. Talking about the future glory of God. And then the fourth blessing that we'll look at this morning is joy and suffering. That's verses 3, 4, and the first part of verse 5. And, and then in verses 9 and 10, salvation from God's wrath. Verse 11, joy that is in God, God Himself. So let's start looking at the first four of these in verse 1. What's one of the consequences of being justified? What is true of us if we're justified? We have peace with God. You see that? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what this means is that by nature, we don't have peace with God. Naturally, we're at enmity with God. Some people don't believe that. Some people live their whole lives thinking that they're okay with God. God's okay with them. That's not what the scripture teaches. The Bible indicates to us very clearly that because of our sin, we are opposed to God and God is opposed to us. Verse 10 says quite bluntly, doesn't it? That it was while we were enemies of God. Enemies, that's what we are by nature. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, now have been reconciled. Verse, Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Again, some people don't want to believe this. You may not want to believe it about your friends, your loved ones that are outside of Christ. But part of thinking biblically is taking God at His word and believing what God says, even though... Everything in your background, all your experience might suggest to you it's not true. But the Bible tells us those outside of Christ are not in some kind of spiritual uh, neutral zone. But they are positively opposed to God. And God is opposed to them. There's war going on between those who have not bowed to Jesus Christ as Lord and the God who created them. And that's true of you if you're here this morning and you've not Bowed to Jesus? Know that the peace that Paul's talking about here belongs only to those who have bowed to Jesus and have been justified by the grace that is in Jesus. Justification establishes reconciliation between sinners and God. I like the way that C.B. Cranfield has commented on this verse. He says this, God does not confer the status of righteousness upon us without at the same time giving himself to us in friendship and establishing peace between himself and us. Jesus is the mediator between God and the people who are saved by God. We need a mediator. We need somebody to extend themselves between God and us and to bring us together and to establish a peaceful relationship. Because of what Jesus has done, and through our faith in Him and His accomplishments, we can be sure that God is no longer angry at us. Brothers and sisters, God does not have anger toward you. God is not hostile toward you. 
God loves you because of Jesus' sake. He will always love you. And even the difficulties that He brings into your life are to discipline you to make you more like Jesus, not to punish you for your sins. We need to remember this. If God punished us for our sins, do you know what that would entail? You know, right? Hell. Hell. That's the only just punishment for sin. And that's exactly what Jesus experienced on the cross. He experienced God's wrath, hell, on the cross so that all who are in Him will never, ever have to experience that. There's peace with God for all who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not trusting Christ, friend, again, I want to plead with you to trust Him now. To take God at His Word and and to come to know the peace that is there, that is available for all who renounce their sin, bow to Jesus, and look to Him as Lord. You will have peace with God. That's the first consequence of justification. The next is found in verse 2. We stand in grace through Him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace here refers to the privileged position that believers have of being accepted by God. Paul here views grace as a realm in which we live, where God always relates to us in kindness and in love. The life of a justified person is a life of grace. God treats us not as we deserve. He always treats us better than we deserve. He always treats us in the ways that Jesus Christ deserves. And he deals with us in grace. The life of a justified person is a life in the realm of grace. There are two things that Paul says about this relationship to the realm of grace. The first is we have obtained access into it. We've attained it. We've obtained it. We haven't earned it ourselves. We didn't get it ourselves. It's a gift to us. We didn't do this on our own. Rather, we were introduced to this realm by Jesus. And the second is we stand in this grace. Justified believers enjoy a privilege far greater than was allowed previous to the coming of Christ to only have periodic access and ability to approach God. We're His family now. We're His children. We live in the realm of His grace. We have constant, direct, immediate access to Him. One of the joys of my old age is being in my home, sitting in my chair, and my grandkids being there. And very often, or sometimes, one of the grandkids would come and just jump up in my lap, and I will pretty regularly say, hey, you think you can just climb up in my lap anytime you want to? And they'll grin, look at me, and they'll say, yep. <laughs> and I'll say, well, why? He said, because you're my paps. And it's true. There's a relationship there. A relationship of peace. A relationship of love. Having this access to God in this way is one of the great advantages that we have over Old Testament people of God. If you had lived in the first part of the first century as a faithful Jew and walked up to the temple of Jerusalem, you would have been confronted by a wall separating the courtyard of the Gentiles from the rest of the structure. And so your Gentile friend would have to stop and not go beyond that wall, though you yourself could go further in. But then you would come to another wall, and it would be a wall that separates the courtyard of the women 
from the courtyard of the men. So if you're a man, you could continue to go. But if you're a Jewish woman, you'd gone as far as you could. But then you'd come to another wall beyond which only the Jewish priests could go and carry out their priestly functions. But even if you were a Jewish priest, you would be confronted by a last barrier. It would be that thick curtain that roped off the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And only one priest could go beyond that curtain, the high priest. And he could only do it one day a year. And he would go in there to make atonement for the people's sins. When Jesus was hanging upon the cross, Hebrews tells us that he entered into the holiest place, the Holy of Holies. And when he said it is finished, and he breathed out his last, Matthew's account tells us that at that moment, that thick curtain that was hanging in the temple, separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, tore into from top to bottom, symbolizing the access that now has been gained through Jesus Christ. So we do not have to fear. We do not have to hesitate to go directly to God because we have a high priest who entered into that holiest place and offered up not the blood of bulls and goats, but offered up his own blood, his own life of complete obedience to God's commandments, laying down that life in order to provide complete atonement for sin. We have access to God. So we can live each day by the power that God gives us through His Spirit. The grace that comes to us to trust Him. To live by faith. Paul writes in Ephesians 3.12 that in Christ we have boldness and access to God with confidence through our faith in Him. So we have peace with God. And we stand in grace. Verse 2 goes on to mention the third consequence of justification that we possess as believers. We rejoice, it says, in hope of the glory of God. Glory of God. His excellencies. His splendor. His majesty and beauty. This is already being partially revealed in some ways. We see it in creation. Uh, The skies, the heavens declare the glory of God. The psalmist says, we see God displaying His glory in providence. I think we are seeing something of it in this coronavirus that's being spread, that's caused our best and brightest to scramble. And despite their best efforts to not be able to resolve it. We see the glory of God uniquely revealed in Jesus Christ in the way that He lived His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. But God's glory will be fully revealed on a set day in the future when history is brought to a close. When the faith shall become sight and the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll and the Lord will descend and every eye will see Him Every tongue will confess that he's Lord and every knee will bow before him. On that day, everyone will know there is a God in heaven and Jesus Christ is his son, the only savior that this world has. Paul says in Titus 2.13 that 
Because we are justified, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And on that day, believers, those who are trusting Jesus, will not only see Him, but we will finally be made exactly like Him. We'll be changed by His glory. 1 John 3, 2 says, We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And Paul says in Romans 8, 21, that on that day, even creation itself will also be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. On that day, no more sickness, no more death, no more disruption of the natural world. On that day, everything will be made right. So we see that glory. We, we hope in that glory. Paul says, not wishful thinking. That's not what he means by hope. But rather it's this firm confidence of possessing that which we do not fully have yet. But it's a certainty. And he says we rejoice in this. We rejoice in this. This word rejoice is not the usual word for rejoice. It means exultant rejoicing or jubilation. The point that Paul is making is this. Because we have been justified by faith, we exult in, we rejoice because of the confidence we have that God's glory will be fully manifested one day. Christ will indeed return. And when He returns, everybody will know it. When He returns, everyone will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's our hope. That's our vision of the future. And the power of that vision can invigorate our lives. It can keep us going through times of difficulties. It can help us fully enjoy good times in our lives without becoming completely earthbound to this world. Thinking that this world is all there is or this is as good as it gets. No, because we hope in the glory of God, brothers and sisters, we know that no matter how good it's been, no matter what's in front of you right now, no matter what you've experienced in the past, the best is yet to be. There is more coming that's going to be amazing. And it's going to just blow us away. And we'll be caught up in it. And we'll become more like Jesus, perfected in Jesus Christ when He appears. And the kingdom of God will rule and overrule everything. That's what's in front of us. So we rejoice. But look at verse 3. It gets even better. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's the fourth blessing that comes from justification. Those who are justified rejoice in sufferings. In sufferings. The, the word suffering here is not the normal word for just pain and frustration of everyday life. But it's the afflictions that result in suffering. The, the, the word means being squeezed. Being pressed. You felt like that sometimes, hadn't you? Things happen beyond your control or maybe things you've done. And the consequence is you're just being squeezed. Paul says, we rejoice in those times. To rejoice in suffering sounds very strange to our modern ears. Because so much of our life is spent trying to alleviate suffering. Trying to guarantee that we don't suffer. That we don't have any discomforts in this life. But the idea of rejoicing and suffering was very common to our 
forefathers in the first century, the brothers and sisters that came to know Jesus then. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas imprisoned in Philippi. What do we find them doing at midnight? They're singing. <laughs> They're rejoicing in suffering. You read in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles are arrested for preaching Christ. And then in verse 41 of Acts 5, it says, after they had been beaten, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for His name. That seems strange to us, doesn't it? You get beaten. Maybe bones broken. Hardship physically. And they, they left rejoicing. They were rejoicing and suffering. They were justified. And the truth of being justified in God's courtroom was so large in their thinking and all that goes with that that there wasn't anything their enemies could do to them to keep them from rejoicing. This is a lesson we need to learn. Because we're living in a time when in this country, in this context, this culture, hostilities against Christians are increasing. Now, let me quickly add, that it doesn't begin to compare to what our brothers and sisters are experiencing right now in Nigeria, North Korea, China. We have Christian brothers and sisters that will not see the sunset today because their lives will be taken from them because they are Christians. But anti-Christian discrimination and bias is going faster in this country. We saw it just a few months ago when New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees made a 22-second video encouraging kids to take their Bibles to school on Bring Your Bible to School Day. 22 seconds. And he got blasted. He got threatened. He had people accusing him of being a bigot and of hate speech and being intolerant and oppressing the LGBTQ plus people. We can expect stories like that to multiply in the days going forward. You may not be beaten because of your faith, but you can count on being opposed and ridiculed because of your, Jesus Christ, because of your devotion to Jesus Christ. So how do Christians respond? How do we handle opposition that comes to us that results in suffering? Well, we remember we're justified. We can rejoice. We don't have to cave in to the fears that our enemies would try to cultivate in our thinking. We don't have to just try to buck it up with stoic and steely resolve. We can rejoice. This is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is not just manufactured. This is what God gives to His people whom He justifies by His grace through Jesus Christ. And if we're not experiencing that, brothers and sisters, we need to cultivate it. We need to ask God, help me to lay hold of this consequence. You say, therefore, since we've been justified, this is true. We rejoice in our sufferings and I want to rejoice in my sufferings and ask God to help you and get brothers and sisters to pray for you and to help you to see more and more how this is the right way for us to live. Suffering, Paul mentions here, though, is not limited to being persecuted for your faith. It includes sufferings, afflictions that are peculiarly trying in what happens to you in this life that you don't expect. Like being laid off from your job or watching a loved one die 
are, are seeing the spread of a deadly virus that nobody can stop. When suffering comes close to Christians, because we are justified by God, we can experience those trials differently than unbelievers. We can go through them, suffer, it hurts, weep, and yet do so not as people who have no hope. Do so as those who know God didn't spare His own Son, but He gave His Son for me. And He is not going to leave me, nor let anything come to my life that will not be redeemed for my good. So brothers and sisters, we can rejoice in sufferings. But notice that Paul's not saying that we rejoice merely in the midst of our trials. That's true. Paul's making the point here that we can rejoice because of our trials and tribulations. The trials that come in a classroom, the trials that come on your job, the trials that come in your home, in your relationships, things that happen to you because you are trying to follow Christ, those become opportunities for serious rejoicing. So should the difficulties that disrupt life in unexpected ways like sickness and injury and betrayal and broken relationships come to you, know and remember and pray that God will help you that Christians who are justified can rejoice in such things. That's what Paul's saying. Now, how in the world can this be? How does it work? Well, Paul spends more time explaining this point than he does anything else in this passage. Here's the argument that he makes in the verses that follow. There's a divine purpose for our tribulations. Knowing that and recognizing that God is at work in and through our tribulations will set you free to rejoice when they come. Here it is. Suffering is the pathway to glory. You don't get there without suffering. You're not going to escape suffering in this life. Look at the way Paul spells it out in verse 3. At the end, he says, suffering produces endurance. Endurance. Without trials, there would be nothing to endure. How are you going to learn to endure? It's only through suffering. Verse 4, he begins going on saying, endurance produces character. Proven character. It's the character of a veteran versus that of a raw recruit who hadn't been tested yet. Somebody who's been through the fire, come through the fire and knows God's faithfulness through it, has a character that is strong, and a character that is exemplary. He goes on in verse 4, this character produces hope. Hope. How does that work? How does character produce hope? Because we learn, going through those trials, seeing God's faithfulness, being conformed more to the image of Christ, we learn that God, who proved faithful in the past, will always be faithful. We're, we're confident of that. And so we have hope. It's not wishful thinking. It is confidence in the God who rules and overrules our world. And then in verse 5, he says, and this hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because the steadfast love of God will never let us down. You can be hopeful when it looks like everything's against you. And all your friends say, are you a fool? Are you an idiot? Why aren't you falling apart? Why aren't you giving over to worry? Well, you can have hope and know that you'll never be put to shame because of God's great love for you.
What Paul is telling us here, brothers and sisters, is there's no wasted pain in a Christian's life. Nothing, nothing, nothing that brings suffering to you will be wasted in your life because you're justified by Christ. Because the Lord has justified you and reconciled you to Himself, you'll never experience any suffering that is meaningless. There's no meaningless pain for a Christian. Rather, we can be sure that our suffering is designed by God to lead us to spiritual maturity. It's to teach us to endure so that our Christian character might be developed, which will give way to more hopeful thinking and outlook of which we'll never need to be ashamed because we will know more and more of God's love and we will live in the security of that love no matter what happens to us. So brothers and sisters, this is how, this is why we can rejoice in sufferings because we know God is working in them to mature us and to make us more and more like Jesus. So the justified life is a life that is rich in joyful hope. Why? Because we have God. We're reconciled to God. We have peace with Him. We stand in His grace. We rejoice in the hope of His coming glory that will be manifested to everyone. And as a result, we can rejoice even in suffering. Well, this is good news. This is good news today as we face uncertain days that are ahead of us. Our governmental authorities and medical experts are telling us that this coronavirus that's spreading across our nation and other nations will get far worse before it gets better. It may be true. They're doing the best they can to give us a prognosis of what is happening. Truth is, we don't know. But in this time to try to mitigate the spread of this virus, everybody's being asked to make sacrifices. And so you're sitting apart from each other this morning as a sacrifice. You're not hugging and shaking hands this morning as a sacrifice. And there are people who have stayed home this morning as a sacrifice. And we're altering our schedule as a sacrifice in order to try to be wise in the face of what's going on. Many people are already suffering. I got a note last night. The church is unable to meet this morning because it was discovered yesterday evening that one of their deacons, faithful deacon, was diagnosed with COVID-19. So everybody in the church has been affected because this deacon has been so faithful in being in the lives of the people in the congregation. There will be more such stories in the days ahead. I have no doubt that all of us will be affected in some way or the other. Some of you already are. Your schools have been canceled. Your jobs have changed. Those things are going to continue to happen. And some in this room may wind up suffering in unusual ways, maybe even severely. But brothers and sisters, let this truth sustain you. Don't give in to fear. Remember God's doing things. He loves you. He is for you. And you can rejoice in suffering because He gave up His Son for you and He's justified you and He's declared you righteous. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to let something happen to you that is outside of His loving providential design and care, meticulous care for your life. Your elders have met. As I've mentioned, we will continue to meet, to pray and think and plan how best to lead us through these uncertain times. 
Would you pray for us that God will help us to do so with joyful hope? That we will look all reality in the face and not try to back away from anything that is true. And as we examine the seen realities, that we will never forget the unseen realities. In some ways, you look at today versus two months ago, and you can say, man, so much has changed. And that's true. That's true. But what's also true is the most important things have not changed. The most important things are still the same. God is on His throne. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is at His right hand. His Spirit indwells us. His Word remains true. And as a family of justified sinners, we can rejoice together as we seek to live wisely. We can be confident knowing that God loves us, that He keeps us, that we have been justified by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that can ever separate us from God because of that. And if you don't have that, if that's not your confidence, you can't say, yes, I'm trusting Christ. Yes, these blessings belong to me. Friend, I encourage you, I invite you right now right now to just where you are bow to God in heaven and say oh God have mercy on me give me what you've given to others I turn from my sin I quit trusting myself and I entrust myself to Jesus Christ as my only Lord and Savior and he'll justify you let's pray together our father you are so good to give us your word. We thank you for not leaving us in the world to try to figure out things on our own. We thank you for the way you assure us in your word through the ministry of your spirit that what you've done for us in Jesus Christ is enough. Help us to remember Christ. Help us to think about Jesus. This afternoon, this evening, I ask that you would work in us that we might rejoice in the midst of uncertainties and changes, that we would resist every temptation to give in to fear, and that we would help those that are bound up in fear by commending Jesus. I pray for those who walk through the doors this morning and they were strangers to you. They don't know what it is to go to bed tonight with sin forgiven. Oh God, would you not show yourself strong and full of grace and mercy by opening up the eyes of their heart, that they might see Jesus Christ, turn from sin, and trust Him. We need wisdom and we need help. We are Your people. So we ask that You would guide us and You would provide for us in these days that we might represent Jesus Christ well. For we pray in His name. Amen.